Good morning, good morning. Breakfast today is dedicated in loving memory and Shalom, sponsored by Cookie and Stanley Chira. Uh, breakfast is also dedicated in loving memory of Rachel Tawel, sponsored by her son Saul Tawel. Uh, breakfast is also sponsored by David Isit, dedicated in honor of the Rabbanim, and uh, is dedicated in loving memory and Lilu Nishmat Moshe Ben Vida, sponsored by Ralph D. Batesh. And Lilu Nishmat Yudit Bat Shmuel. And our cold brew was also donated uh, as a Tashem. Anonymous, sponsored anonymously, Lilu Nishmat Mordechai Ben Leach. Ben Rivka. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> um, I'd like to talk about something which I think is a, uh, is a powerful topic. Um, but it only appears, it only shows its head uh, in the most minuscule of ways. And I'd like to give an example for how one learns Torah with this in mind. I want you to imagine you walk into your house in Deal. Let's imagine it's in Deal because I don't want it to be in Brooklyn, in, in Manhattan it's much smaller. Imagine you walk into your Deal house in the summer. You got how much square footage? I don't know, thousands of square feet. You have a property, enormous. All of a sudden as you walk in, you take a whiff and you smell the faintest smell of gas. Has that ever happened to you? Faintest smell. You, you go into a panic. Why? Because the faintest smell of, of gas, if there's a gas leak somewhere, the entire house, your whole backyard, the whole front yard, everywhere which is attached to this gas line is in danger of uh, exploding and just being destroyed in a split second, right? The tiniest whiff. When it comes to Torah as well, a lot of times it's one letter which is out of place. It's one word which could have been used in a different way. It's a sensitivity which is off, something which is a little bit strange that gives you a, a whiff, uh, a, a leading charge, if you will, to maybe turn your, your point of perspective like a tiny, maybe 1%, 1 degree to the right or to the left. But that results in seeing things in a completely different way. But you have to be careful and pay attention to get that whiff that something is a little bit off. Okay, so I want to give you an example of something which is really, really small. But at the same time, when we, when we kind of open it up a little bit, we get a deeper understanding of what it is that's being communicated here. And the lesson for life is enormous and eternal. The Pasuk says, Yaakov is traveling and he reaches the place, or more specifically, the place reaches him. He bumped into the place that he was traveling towards. And he decides uh, he needs to sleep here. Kiba Hashemish, because the sun is almost immediately setting. Kiba Hashemish, for the sun is setting. It's almost as if Yaakov is in some sort of dreamscape, in some sort of fairy tale situation or story where instead of him moving towards the objects in his life, the objects in his life are moving towards him. Do you remember that line that used to be written on the mirrors of every car? Objects in the rearview mirror may be closer than they appear. You know, yeah, that, uh, that line, which then got turned into a song. Rabotai, sometimes the objects in, in, in life that are, uh, you know, that are, almost seem to be far away in the distance behind us, they have a way of speeding up and slamming into our backs and taking us by surprise. So that little niggling feeling you have about something not being right in your marriage, you, you know, you're thinking about, oh, there's something... 
She's not so happy. Or there's a child in school, the kid comes home one day, two days, they're a little bit unsettled, something happened in the classroom, you're not really quite sure what it is. You know, you think it's something which is kind of, you know, it, it's there, and then all of a sudden, it accelerates and slams into you from behind. And this thing, which is a small thing, turns mushrooms into a major episode because you didn't give it the attention that it needed in the time when it presented itself. There are things that are speeding into Yaakov Avinu. It's almost as if <clears throat> he is designed, designated to get to this place. So let's pay attention very carefully to what happens after these things are speeding towards Yaakov, as opposed to him moving towards them at a pace that he chooses. Vaikach me'avneha makom, Yaakov takes from the stones of the place, Vayasem me'rashotav. This is a very strange word. For anyone here who speaks Hebrew, tell me the last time you heard a word like this defined. If I take a pillow and I put it under my head, how would you say you put a pillow under your head? Vayasem mitakarit, mitachat, mitachat rosho, underneath your head. What is merashotav? He took the stones and he put it from his head. From his head? What does that mean? Mei rashotav? What does that mean? Mei rashotav? What does that mean? It's a strange, it's a strange grammatical syntax. And we'll see exactly why. And vayishkava makomahu. And Yaakov uh, sleeps in that place. Okay? I think that there's an important element here that really, really needs to be discussed. If one looks at Rashi, you see that Rashi is trying to communicate to us the almost miraculous fairy tale dreamlike scenario that Yaakov is in. And what does he say? He says as follows. And he took me'avnea makom, and he took from the stones, plural, of the place, and he put it underneath, uh, underneath his head. Vayishkav makomahu, says Rashi, what does it mean? Vayikach me'avnea makom, vayasem me'rashotav, asa'an kemin marzev, he made them like a fence, like a barrier. Saviv l'rosho, around his head. He was worried in this wilderness from being attacked by all sorts of wild animals. Then Rashi continues and tells us something even more strange. These many stones, they started to quarrel, to fight one with another. Zot Omer, each stone said, The Sadiq, the righteous man, he should place his head upon me. And this stone said, No, let the Sadiq put his head on me. Immediately, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made these many stones into one stone. And this is what it means when it says later on, And he took the stone singular. That he had placed under or around his head. Even this singular stone had come from the many stones. How did many become few, unlike the Labour Party? How did many become few? How did that happen, Rabotai? That happened because, as Rashi is explaining in the name of the, Midra- of the Midrash and as well the Gemaran Khulin, the stones were fighting to be under his head. What's my problem with this? My problem is the problem of the Maharsha. 
The Maharsha asks, where is the Gemara getting all of this? You're telling me that the stones were asking to be put underneath Yaakov's head, but you just got finished telling me that what was Yaakov trying to do? He was trying to build a fence around his head. So why would the stone say the Sadiq should put his head on me if it wasn't actually putting his head on any of them? Rabotai says the Maharsha, the Maharsha says, indeed, both of these teachings are true. He put stones around his head and he put a stone, one stone underneath his head. So all the stones that were surrounding his head all wanted to be underneath the head of Yaakov Avin. Ladies and gentlemen, Rabotai, this is so important. Every idea here, every single one of these ideas is magnificent when it's understood in its true context. Think of where Yaakov is in his life. He is a student of Shem Va'ever. He's connected to Yitzhak Avinu. He uh, is someone who is now just finished with the story and the saga of the Berachot and he's running away. Where's he going to? He's going to find himself a wife and build a family. He's taken all of this money with him, just like his father, Yitzhak Avinu. He's taken all this money with him to try and find himself a wife and to try and show her that he has good prospects, etc., etc. But all of that money has been stolen. So he's penniless, homeless, okay, familyless, futureless. This is the moment where we are finding Yaakov Avinu in a moment that for many people would have resulted in tremendous despair. Not just despair in his personal situation, but even, shh, even more so, despair about the fact that the God that gave him all these blessings and the Father that blessed him with God's blessings, none of them seem to be coming true. In this moment we find Yaakov Avin. Suddenly, things in his life are speeding towards him. The uh, uh, marriage, brotherhood, family, future. It's not something which seems to be in his control anymore. Everything is spiraled away from Yaakov Avinu. Remember, the whole beginning of his life, everything that he did worked out well. He just went every morning, went to the yeshiva. He stuck his feet in ice water and he started learning and he would learn all day, all night. Everything that Yaakov did was very, very simple, very, very straightforward, and very, very successful. All of a sudden, his life speeds up and spirals away from him. The story with the blessings, now here he is, he doesn't know anything. You hear what I'm saying? Things are speeding towards him, they're out of control. Yaakov does what every person needs to do when their life gets suddenly complicated. He protects his head. He places them around his head. He takes the stones of the area and he puts them around his head. He says to himself, one second, and this is something that I think that most people in difficult situations don't understand. You were never meant to run from difficult situations. What does Yaakov do? when he sees and senses that all these things are happening, he decides, Right here, this is where I'm going to sleep. A a person, when they are asleep, they are at their most vulnerable. They cannot protect themselves. And yet, 
Normally, in this situation, the flight mode of a person would be engaged. He would feel this uncertainty. He would feel these challenges and these problems. And the only thing he'll do is run. Yaakov says, no. I need to, I need to camp in this. I need to settle, dig my feet, my teeth, my fingers into this situation. Here is where I need to be. And even though here is where I need to be, the only thing that I need to protect in this vulnerable state where I'm actually uh, accepting, not denying the realities that surround me, the only thing I need to do is to protect my head, to keep my, my thoughts, my focus in my internal value, in my internal values, okay? The machloket between the stones, therefore, is this. There are two things that the person needs to do in situations that are trying, that are difficult. Number one, the first thing he needs to do is to protect his head, to not let thoughts that are coming from the outside poison his mind. Can I give you an example of that? An example of that might be a situation that came to my attention a little while ago in my office. Uh, A man was unfortunately in a very difficult marriage. The guy is a wonderful guy. Came to speak to me. I don't know, his wife moved on. She's in a different place. Uh, you know, she's, she's checked out. You know how people sometimes are in a situation, but they checked out? It could be in marriage. It could be a business partner. It could be a friend. They just checked out. They're there physically, but their heart, their mind, they're just not here. They're not in it, okay? The guy comes to me and he says, she's asking me for a divorce. Right? She's willing to give me everything and anything just to get away, just to give a get. And he says, but I can't, I don't want to give her the get. I said, what, why not? He says, because I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I don't have her. I'm afraid of being alone. I said to him, sweetheart, I love you, but you're already alone. She's not here. She's not here. She is not here. The only thing you're doing is prolonging the situation by not recognizing the reality. If you didn't fight, if we didn't try to fix, if, 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 fine. But if we've done everything that we seemingly can, what are you doing? What are you holding on to? This is a guy who is such a confident fellow. He, he's lovable, he's good character, he's got a tremendous job, he does very well for himself. You know what, five minutes on the market, quote unquote, he'll find a line of people waiting to go out with him. But this person, in this situation, he started to allow all these thoughts come into his head, you know, about the fact that that means I'm not good enough and I'm not worthy and I'm not valuable and I'm damaged good, all these things. And I kept saying to him, why, on what basis are any of these thoughts coming into your head? You lost the job, maybe that's more about a boss that's uncomfortable with how good you are at his job that he needs to get rid of you. Maybe that's a sign of strength in you and not a sign of weakness. Who said? Number one, number one is protect your head from the outside. Chayot ra'ot, there's a lot of wild animals there who want to make you believe a lot of things. Because if they get to your head, they know they have the keys to yourself. That's how it works. But there's a second thing that needs to be done. And that is, the person needs to decide in a difficult moment which stone he's putting his head on. One thing is to protect yourself. The second thing is to find something upon which 
to base your set of values and your set of thoughts. For one person, that's the deepest emunah. For another person, that might be in this moment in his life, he, he, he places his head on the trust that he has and the loyalty of his friends. For a third person, it's a person sharpening their skills and their skill sets and they know if they just do this, this is what they need to get out of it. The focus, aside from protecting yourself, in which of these stones is the one that I put my head on to be able to get myself clear and free of this situation. Each one of the stones is vying. Is it the mitzvah of chesed? Is it the zechut of Talmud Torah? Is it tzedakah? Each one is vying for the person to say, Let the tzaddik put his head on me. Let him rest. Let him be relaxed and reassured upon me. Do you hear this, Rabbutai? And once Yaakov does this, who is able to go to sleep in that place. There's no denial and there's no faking of the reality. He can see and feel everything absolutely clearly. Rabutai, what a powerful lesson uh, this is. So I want to end, if I can, and wrap this up with one simple idea of an example of this uh, situation. You know, there was a rabbi whose name was Rabbi Naftali Weinberger. Tremendous, tremendous Baal Chesed. He lived in Israel and he had an organization and the organization would take care of children that weren't well, okay? They arranged a Shabbaton for special needs children, children with all sorts of uh, difficulties in their mental development. They arranged a Shabbaton for 100 special needs kids. I don't know if you've ever worked with or spent time with a child that has special needs. Special needs means special needs. It means that they need special attention. They need someone who's looking out for them all the time, to feed them, to wash them, to put them to bed, to wake them up, to take them in, to bring them out. He had a Shabbaton with 100 kids. And you know how many staff members 100 kids need? It's a one-to-one ratio. Each person has one person looking after them, only them, the whole Shabbat. And not only is this a mitzvah to have, to give these kids a Shabbaton, a wonderful time, it's also a tremendous mitzvah because of what it does for the families of children like this, for the other children in those families, where the child, the husband, the father, the mother, they get a little bit of a, of a break to breathe, to come back to themselves. The children have time where there's things that they could do or go away where they never could have gone away because it wasn't an accessible place or journey for that brother or sister. What a wonderful mitzvah. Rabotai, a few hours before the Shabbat, Rabbi Naftali Weinberger is sitting with his, uh, with his second in command and they get a phone call and his, uh, his what's it called, his, uh, his colleague sees that he, his face goes sour, his face falls. He says, Rabbi, what's the matter? He says, I just got a phone call from one of the mothers. The mother says to me that her son has, a, 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 what's it called, a, uh, a, a, an infection, a disease or whatever and it's, uh, it's uh, contagious and the doctor recommended that he should not be exposed to anybody else. So I'm really sorry, we need to pull our child out of, uh, of the Shabbaton. So he says to his, his friend, he says, they just called me with this phone call three hours before. We have a laundry list of people who want to come on the Shabbaton, who we had to tell no, each family heartbreaking to tell them no. And now we've got one empty space that's not going to be used. And a staff member who's given of their time, a volunteer, to come that doesn't have somebody to watch. 
So he says, so why? Why are you upset? Just call. Call somebody. Call one person on the list. He says, well, which person should we call? He says, let's pick the toughest case. You know, the person that needs the most help, and that will be the person. Anyway, they're scrolling down the list. All of a sudden, both of them said, one, at the same time, they both looked at one name. They said, why don't we call him? So when they looked at each other, they said, you know, this is not the toughest case. You know, I mean, obviously it's all tough, but this is not the toughest case. The rabbi says, look, if we both pick this name at random, at the same second, maybe there's a reason why we're picking this specific person. He says, okay. He calls a man on the phone. And he says, hello, this is the rabbi calling. I just wanted to tell you, I'm uh, offering, I would like to invite your son to come spend Shabbat with us in the hotel to take the Shabbaton. The voice on the other end of the line says, I can't believe it. You're offering my son a place for Shabbat now? The rabbi feels bad. Maybe the guy's upset now. It's only a few hours before Shabbat. So he says, I'm so sorry. He goes, no, 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 don't, don't be sorry. I can't believe you're offering me a place for my son for Shabbat right now. Three hours before Shabbat. He says, again, I'm sorry. He goes, no, no, I don't mean, I don't mean to make you feel bad. He says, let me tell you what happened. My son has, one of my other children has his third birthday. We're taking him up to Miron to cut his hair. We wanted him to be on the Shabbaton, our son, so that we could take this journey with the family to go to Miron, a whole beautiful Shabbat that would have been very difficult because of the situation to take our son. So we were struggling to find something to do with him so that we could have this. Our kids have not had a vacation in years. We finally found someone because you couldn't have them for the Shabbaton. And he says, and I got a phone call while we were driving that the host who was hosting our child, their father-in-law just passed away. They said, we're really sorry. We don't know what to tell you, but we've had a death in the family. The father-in-law has passed away. My husband is sitting shiva. We can't, we can no longer watch your child. And I'm thinking to myself, we now need to turn around and drive all these hours back to go be Shabbat with our son. All the other kids are now going to resent their brother. It's not his fault, but they're going to resent him for once again taking away their Shabbat away or whatever, whatever. And he says, and I've been losing my mind. I'm stopped on the side of the road at a gas station praying to Hashem for an answer. And right now you call and ask if my son could join you for the Shabbaton. I can't believe you just called me right now to offer my son a place for the Shabbaton. Thank you so much. They drive, he picks up the kid, takes him to the, hot, to the hotel, he checks him in for the Shabbaton. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Saturday night, after the boy has had the most beautiful Shabbaton, the most wonderful time, they pick him up, he's smiling from ear to ear. The man says to the rabbi, he says, can you tell me, sir, how much does it cost to have my son on the program? He said, no, 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 he said, I, I, uh, uh, we don't charge, this, this is... We don't charge anybody because we don't want to differentiate between wealthy families and families that are poor. This is done as an act of chesed. The man says, Rabbi, I know that it's an act of chesed, but how much does it cost to have one child, have my son here for Shabbat? He says, sir, I refuse to take your money. He says, stop arguing with me, Rabbi. How much does it cost? He says, I'll tell you the cost. The cost is this. 
certain amount. He tells them how much it is, $1,000, let's say, each kid, a room, board, the volunteer, another room, more board. He says, and how many children did you have? He said, 100, 100 children. Why are you asking? He says, I'll tell you. I went to Miron, and as I'm spending Shabbat there, there's a wealthy man who came from England who was spending Shabbat in the same place. And we got to talking, and he's asking me about my wonderful family and my children, and I'm telling him that these are my kids except for one kid. He asks me, where's the child that's not here? He says, he's on a Shabbaton. This kid is on some Shabbaton away, and they took him, and it's unbelievable, and they, you know, they're not even charging me. He says, tell me how much each child costs. He says, because not only do I want to spend, I want to sponsor your child for the Shabbat, I want this charity to know that the entire Shabbat, 100 children, 100 volunteers, is all paid for. I want this beautiful mitzvah for myself. He hands the rabbi the check. He fills out the amount from this wealthy man in England, exactly how much it was. Let's say it was $100,000. He hands a check to the rabbi. And he says, Shavuot, have a good week. Rabbi Weinberger turns to his assistant and he's shaking his head. He says, we're going down the list. And all of a sudden, you know, we're upset that now we tried to do this chesed, you know, spun away from us. This kid is un- unwell. And we're going down the list and our finger falls on something random. And we decide to chase it up, to sit, to be in what it is that we felt that we fell into. And he says, truth be told, we don't have the money to pay for the Shabbat. But I know I've been doing this for years, he says. And I know how much it means to the families. And I know how much it means to the children. And I know it's the right thing to do. And no matter how difficult it is, if I know it's the right thing to do, he says, I know that Hashem will sort it out. And he says, and every single year, something like this happens. Rabotai, he takes the stones and he protects his head. All the worries, all the fears, all the doubts, they're all there. But he protects his head. He knows in his head it's the right thing to do. He knows that when he does the right thing, the right thing happens. And he places his head on one of those rocks. Which one is it? I don't know. But in the end, God takes all of those rocks, all of those situations, all of the difficulties, and somehow weaves them in to be one thing where a person can learn from no matter what happens to them in their life. That if they focus on the goal, if they don't allow those things to distract them, if they are real with the situation that they are in, if they recognize their difficulties and then choose instead of running away from them to literally set up camp in them, uh, we find HaKadosh Baruch who blesses us with the most wonderful blessings of all. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.